0: Uh, I want to start with just a little bit of a disclaimer. If we were designing this room for this event, we would not be on a stage. It would be a great big round circle. So imagine that that's what it is. It is going to be a different kind of South By conversation. And you know, the word town hall in the title is not an accident. Um, I was going to say something about no speechifying at the microphone, and then I was like, well, screw that. Of course there's gonna be speechifying. We want speechifying. Think of it like a school board meeting or a local community board meeting. You know, the, the state of where we are in social media is complicated and I'm hopeful that you will bring your best, fieriest, fiercest self to this conversation. With that, we have four amazing people on the stage. Uh, they are not here to be experts. They're not gonna vote on your idea. We're not, it's not, going to be a, we're not like an Olympics jury but we asked them to also share their personal stories about things that went well and didn't go well. So we're gonna get to that in just a second, but I wanted to just start by setting a little bit of a stage. So 2008 was an important year, and when we talk about 15 years, it's worth remembering how we got here. The headline from Wired Magazine was, 2008 is the year the audience keynoted. Uh, And probably most of you were not here, don't remember it, but it was a, it was a, it was a, legendary year and it was a legendary year because Mark Zuckerberg and Sarah Lacey had an onstage keynote conversation in which the audience essentially took over Twitter and just took the whole thing apart um, what we what it, what I learned last night when you read the Wired magazine article is that it was planned and it really was the the exhibition of the democratization of media and you know if you watch the interview objectively it was fine like I, I i mean i know sarah a long time mark was mark there's nothing in it sitting here today that would surprise you but it was uh it was a bit of a meltdown so after that wired magazine interviewed hugh and this is what he said he said certainly to come to that kind of a climax with the zuckerberg thing which wasn't what we'd wish it would have turned out a little differently However, taken as an g- experiment, this is the new digital stuff and how it works, and it's pretty fascinating. Uh, I love that quote because it, it is exactly what it was. It was like, we kind of unleashed this thing. Nobody strategized it. Nobody said, we're going we're to let this you know, social media thing out into the wild, and this is the place where it happened. So this is what we're going to do, and with that, I'm going to introduce, let each of our panelists introduce themselves, and then I'm going to ask them each a question. Natasha.
1: Hi, everyone. Thanks for coming. Um, My name is Natasha Tiku. I'm the tech culture reporter for The Washington Post, and I've been covering tech for, let's say, 15 years.
2: Hi, my name is Brittany Kaiser, and I'm a data rights activist. Some might know me as the Cambridge Analytica whistleblower. And over the past five years, I've spent most of my time writing digital asset legislation, doing global lobbying on data protection and privacy, and I founded the Own Your Data Foundation where we teach digital literacy.
3: And I'm uh, Josh Williams. Like Hugh said, I, I've now launched Goala here twice at South by Southwest. And um, I'm a fifth generation Texan who's uh, stuck in California. It's just a pleasure to be back. OK. Welcome, panel.
0: So to start it off, I thought it would be fun to ask each person to tell a story, brief story, about something that happened to them that relates to social media that was wonderful and positive. And uh, I I will begin and tell a story. Uh, It was midway through, we didn't know that COVID had a beginning, middle and end. It was year two and at that time in New York, we thought it might be forever. And we decided, my wife and I, that what we needed to do was adopt a puppy. Turns out we were not, this was not a unique thing. There was a run on puppies during, Uh, Covid, and I went on Instagram, which I was not a regular user of, and stumbled into this thing, a a, a user called Social Tees, and they just had this extraordinary collection of puppies, and and one of them, who I saw on social media, just literally swept us off our feet. I don't think we've been out of the apartment in six months, and we reached out, we filled out all the paperwork, we adopted this puppy sight unseen and we got in an Uber all masked up and gloves and all kinds of layers of stuff. And we went and rescued this amazing puppy. So this is Duke. Uh, And Duke is our COVID puppy and he's our social media puppy. And the people at social teas are fantastic. And uh, they told us that he was a Chihuahua Beagle mix, which turned out to be completely untrue. (laughs) Uh, A little secret. They have no idea what the mix is. Um, but, but he actually won an award. Uh, he, he, he actually went to puppy training in Central Park outdoors. Uh, and that, that, you know, I thought of a lot of good things social media has done for me, but Duke is far and away my favorite. So with that, Natasha, t- tell a good social media story.
1: Well, I don't have um, uh, one particular story, but as a journalist, I I basically live on social media and owe my career to it and a lot of the entertainment to it. It's actually exactly what you were describing with the Twitter takedown of Mark Zuckerberg's interview, um, like. I live for that stuff. (laughs) Um, Just when you can plug yourself into the fire hose and you feel like you are on the same wavelength as all these people, really doesn't matter where they are, and you're reacting to an event at the same time. I mean, there's just nothing else like that. It just feels like, I guess, the internet sense of community, but faster. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I love it. Put me in that state all the time. So, so, really,
0: I think we know the terrible story.
2: Can, <laughs> a lot there, of people do. Yes, is there uh, a wonderful story? Well, I, I think really where my social media management or engagement really, uh, really kind of caught a, a zeitgeist for me was when I first joined the Obama campaign. I was 19 years old. I would already worked on Senator Obama's uh, senatorial campaign as a volunteer. And I quit college to join uh, full-time in the office in Chicago at Campaign HQ. And one of the most powerful moments that we had, I had created Barack Obama's Facebook page. He was so proud when he got to see his little face, and he said, oh, that's me on the page. And the first big event that we that we did was one of during the first big presidential debate, and we had built this algorithmic platform that every time there was a comment or an incoming question, would sort it by topic or category and we had the entire new media team in the office everyone taking a different category or policy and we were live answering people's questions and live responding to all of the comments And that was the first time that had ever been done again this was still the first time social media had ever been used in politics we ended up getting millions of people to engage with us and being able to answer tens of thousands of questions uh, live, it was incredible and to be able to see that amount of growing engagement and for us to be able to actually live answer people's questions when normally ever before you had only been able to interact with a television yelling at it or, or being excited at it, whatever you wanted to feel, but there was no, there, there was nothing coming back at you that I really thought that Facebook and social media in general is going to be one of the most powerful tools for positive political change found out a little differently a few years later, but that's a story for another time.
3: It's a great story. (laughs) Josh. So I think social media has impacted my life positively in a lot of ways, and and a few things quickly came to mind, but then one particular stuck out. In in 2014, uh, over Thanksgiving, my father, who was uh, receiving treatment for cancer at that time, his, uh, his medication went off balance. And I remember I was with my wife's family, and I received a text from my dad, and he was not well. Um, he was a little out of sorts, and he said, "I'm, I'm scared. I'm, I'm leaving home." And that was the last. I, I got a disturbing photo, and and he was gone. And about an hour later, I received a phone call from from my stepmom. Your dad has left. We don't know where he is. And um, uh, we found video footage of him from the gas station of him throwing his phone out the window um, because. Uh, I worked in location-based social media. He knew dad Josh will, you know, find me, <laughs> and he ditched his phone. We we didn't know where dad where dad was, and uh, I ended up hitting Twitter and I said, "Hey, my dad. This is, you know, Dallas." Um, I said, "My dad's left home. All we know is he's, you know, he's in a truck. Um, but he's wearing his bathrobe, and he's driving north and whatever." And uh, of course, it picked up steam, and the the folks at Twitter found it, and they dumped a bunch of uh, ad credit onto my account and said, "Hey, boost, boost this tweet, boost it out," and it, it became, it, it steamrolled. Next thing you know, again, it's like been viewed, you know, hundreds of thousands of, my time, of times, and the next day we received, um, there was a tweet. It's like I, I, I see a guy matches this description, has the backpack uh, on outside of a Walmart in Branson, Missouri. And this, this checked a few boxes off. And because of the help of Twitter, we were able to locate my dad. And it was uh, just this unbelievable, again, the support of a community to come together and, and actually find a missing person in this case um, just, just floored me. And I'll, I'll always be thankful for that. So when you moderate a panel like this, None of
0: this was prepared in advance. And then you hope that people tell stories like that because there's, and by the way, I assume some of you have amazing, wonderful social media, change your life, meet your partner, people. It, it is a magical thing. And, and the reason I wanted to start there is because there's gonna be plenty of stuff that we think needs to get fixed. Features that are missing, things that are broken, and we'll talk about those too. Um, by the way, I should tell you, it's bright up here, so I'm going to have a little trouble seeing the mic. Um, where is the... Okay, there it is. Okay, good. <laughs> Thank you. So, so um, feel free to jump up as quickly. We, here's the, here would be the home run of this hour. If somebody says something, I have an idea or I'm building a company or I've got a startup or I feel like... And somebody else says, hey, that aligns with something I know how to do, and we make little marriages in this room and we get some things done. That would be great. And you know, this, and the reason I'm continuing to say these things is because at most of these kinds of things, you know, the people that come up and pitch their business at the last five minutes, kind of, ugh. But, but here, we want you to do that. So as quickly as you want to join the conversation, the mic is there and we'll call on you. Um, now I want to get to the second half of my question. Tell me something spectacularly terrible. And I'll, I will go first, it's a little one. Uh, and some of you will think this is wildly naive, but I was involved in some argument on Twitter, this was two or three years ago, and somebody said something about me that was kind of mean, not, not so wildly mean that it injured me, and they put my name in brackets. And you, some of you know what that means, and some of you didn't, don't, but I didn't. They put my name in three brackets, and that means Jewish. I found out later. And it was as seething and, and like I didn't know that I was being labeled and it was clearly meant to be anti-Semitic and I'd never been called out in that way on stage or in a, in a, in a tweet and and I, to this day it makes me tremble when I think of it. Mm. So doesn't have to be as bad as that.
1: Um, well, as a non-white woman on the internet, every day is fun. <laughs> Every day is a new adventure. Um, I would say, you know, all of the positives can also be amplified in the opposite direction, back at you, Um, uh, especially if you make certain contingents of the internet mad. Um, I would say probably my worst one was getting, um, it was a holiday and a lot of capital, tech men were extremely mad at me. Um, and I, I just like spent it on the couch trying to figure out why it was happening all at once. Um, you know, the same kind of deluge, like when your phone just you just wish you could throw it in the ocean. And uh, I got a call the next day and they uh, was a source who explained to me that, oh, this this like billionaire (laughs) venture capitalist, you know, he just has his firm, you know, go after people. Uh, And so that was all orchestrated against you. And that's why it felt like, um, you know,
2: and I I don't know if that's
1: true, but it made me feel better because it was horrible.
2: Well, some of you might know part of this story, but uh, about a month after Donald Trump got elected president, there were two different groups of people in Cambridge Analytica that had either worked for the Trump campaign or for the Trump Super PAC, also known as Make America Number One or Defeat Crooked Hillary. And when the Super PAC came up to give their presentation to the rest of us that hadn't worked on these campaigns, they showed the moment where they decided that instead of this being a pro-Trump Super PAC, that it would just be an anti-Hillary Super PAC. And that was when they started doing testing of negative and inflammatory content, content that was specifically designed to make people angry, stuff that was designed specifically to be targeted at people who were neurotic, fear-based messaging, Uh, that it was at least 30 to 40% more effective than anything else that they were sending out. Higher engagement, more sharing, more signing up, more donations. And so they went 100% negative and started showing us the content that they uh, pivoted to because of the data that this was showing and how incredibly effective negative messaging is on social media. I recorded it and later used it in whistleblowing evidence.
3: Um, In early April of 2020, so this is shortly after the pandemic began, uh, I was working a puzzle at home on about eight o'clock on a Saturday night and my phone buzzed a couple times and I ignored it. Uh, and then my daughter's phone, you know, buzzed. She was, um, early in her teens, I think 14 at the time and she ran out the front door. And of course, you know, you wonder what's your teenage daughter running out the front door, you know, for, and I called after her and she didn't come back until, you know, continued. And five minutes later, my phone rang again. Only this time it was, it was from her. So I picked up and she said, uh, dad, you need to come outside. Uh, the police are here and really, and she's like, come, come right now. And I, and I walked and I opened the front door and was greeted by floodlights and police officers with long rifles drawn and laser sights on me. Um, and uh, immediately I, I kind of, I was taken aback and said, have I been swatted? Um, and there were 40 officers, five dogs, um, you know, they had surrounded our house and they escorted me off the front porch where I was given the pat down I had to call uh, my family that was still inside and have them come out of the home while they cleared our home. And uh, it turns out I had been the victim of a swatting incident. Um, As an early uh, adopter, I have a two-letter username on a lot of platforms, including my my initials, JW, on Twitter and Instagram. And as it turns, there is a dark web uh, of people that target short common usernames uh, with the goal to flip it for cryptocurrency before they can be you know, caught. And uh, as it turns out, I, I was one of those targets as well. And also as an early um, internet user, you know all the other people with those common usernames. And it turns out that there's a lot of us who have received very, very similar uh, incidents. Um, and it's horrifying. And I think that's the realization that this isn't, um, it's not all fun and games anymore. So thank you. By the way,
0: again, this was an experiment and I, I'm going to deem it a success because those two ends, first of all, the stories are far more horrible than I expected them to be. And they're also far more, I mean, putting your father's story and the swatting story on opposite ends of the spectrum, that's what we're here to talk about today. And, and one of the reasons why I wanted to make sure we started with the positives is because they don't get amplified. Right, that story about your father, you know, maybe you told a reporter five years ago, maybe you got written about once, but it doesn't have the same resonance. I mean, this is, right. and, and so I was on a panel two days ago talking about how social media and media broadly amplifies hate for profit. And one of the things I would put to the audience and put to you guys to talk about is, you know, is it just a simple problem of basically misaligned incentives? where it is far more profitable to amplify horrible information than it is to amplify positive information.
3: I mean, I think you Absolutely, I, I think. I, I'm
2: it. really happy to jump in here, and it, it's an unfortunate answer that no one's really going to like. And the problem is actually with human psychology, that we are much more likely to click on and engage with inflammatory content, something that provokes a negative emotion in us, something that makes us want to get up and go take an action, share that information with someone because you are angry, you are incited. Uh, the other, on the other hand, surprise or awe can sometimes really meet up with that emotion, but it's a a little bit rare and it's hard to predict what is going to inspire that kind of feeling in someone. But anger and incitement, uh, unfortunately, is something that we are always going to engage with more. So uh, on the incentive and infrastructure side on social media, and especially on... ROI for advertisers, we really need to bake in uh, a lot of checks and balances around that because, unfortunately, it gets more clicks, therefore it makes a a higher ROI, therefore information spreads much more quickly when it is negative, and that is a problem that is not just a social media problem, it is a human problem.
0: I'm be quiet on purpose. I have plenty to say about that, but I'm, I'm...
3: Yesterday, in the midst of you know our, we launched a product here, and um, there was obviously bad news from you know banks over the weekend. And I received you know a, a text from uh, my wife yesterday morning, and, and it, the text was, "I'm so angry." That was the first one, and then the next one rolled in. Uh, I'm you know I'm livid about this. This is disgusting to me, and of course I'm I'm waiting I'm waiting for it, and um, and then the link came through. And, and I won't amplify what it was, but it was, it was, uh, it was an article and it was, you know, political and it was, um, uh, it was just garbage. You know, it's, it's, and it is, it's the sort of thing that makes you angry you want to tell somebody about it. And of course the, you know, whether it's Twitter or whether it's your news app, you click on these things and it knows that you clicked on that. And, and we joke about a lot. Like if you're a parent, you tend to click on sad stories that involve, you know, children, uh, and then it's like, oh, you you like reading sad stories about children. I got more sad stories about children, you know, for you. And so let's let's feed you some more. Next thing you know, you're like your your entire feed is just sad stories about children. It's horrible, you know. And it's like, well, don't click on that. But then again, the computer is like, well, you clicked on it, go. Um, and I that is one of those things of like, how do you get out of that cycle?
1: Well, isn't that tied though to an advertising-based infrastructure, like? Pay structure, which you're experimenting with, right, with Goala now. Like, people, I think, are are realizing the cost of having it subsidized by advertising, because um, you know, you, it's in the company's interest to keep you engaged with the platform, if they get their revenue from advertising. And I think. Um, I, I of course, agree with what you're saying, that psychological instinct. But we have other, as humans, many other instincts that could also be... um you know, incentivized. Um, there's there's other, like, methods, other buttons to push. I feel like after 15 years of um, intermittent variable rewards, I mean, part of the reason you want to share that is m- maybe, you know, in the past, you know you've gone viral for something like that, or you get those likes and those retweets and shares and what have you. And I, I really think that if the... Financial incentive is different. We haven't even begun, really, to structure something that is based on on amplifying our less base human instincts. So well, I, I think wait, one of the wait, best. Wait, wait,
0: one second, because yeah. she, she she teed up the Gowala 2.0 pitch. So t- tell us what you're doing.
1: That's right. right. There, I mean, we're
0: right there.
3: I think one of the big differences between, if we if we look at the early days, the you know the exuberant you know man is inherently good. Let's share our naive. I'm eating a sandwich. You know <laughs> tweets. Um, you know part of that was like you knew when twitter launched you kind of knew the people that, who were who reading your content you know quote unquote and they were people that were largely at this conference or or whatnot and there was a comfort level of i'm sharing a certain thing with this audience and they won't judge me for that or i won't get this negative blowback and, and then because um natasha to your point there's this um you know we want to serve more ads so the larger audience more clicks more whatever benefits that that machine um, and we've seen how it it, it kind of has dissembled in front of our eyes now. And so I think this idea of how do you share with smaller groups of people again, or how do you share that sort of content of like, Hey, um, again, yesterday morning I, I you know, checked in and I was at um, Houndstooth coffee um, and that went out to a small group of my friends who can see that. And 30 minutes later, a friend I haven't seen in, in nine years walked in. It was like, Oh, I saw, I saw your check in here you are. And, um, you know, that's the sort of thing. Like, how do you get back to that of getting that loop of um, of, of simple, you know, choice content? But let's
0: assume not everyone in the audience knows Koala either one or two. Just give us the elevator pitch so we know
3: the product. So the elevator pitch is um, it's a social network for you and your close friends that keeps you connected. And so I can uh, right now open up and I can say, hey, I'm at the you know Austin Convention Center, and it shares that with friends that I've. You know, it's like find my friends with a messenger, and we we've gamified it a little bit. We make it fun. We amplify the places because. I love this idea that you can discover, you know, more of the world uh, through the eyes of your friends. So it's not just, you know, here's a face on a map, but more let me associate you with, again, the coffee that you like or the movie that you went to or the concert you saw, you know, New Order, New Order last night. And, and I think those are the sorts of stories that, uh, to your point, how do you amplify that? Of like, oh, I love that band. Or, you know, I've been to that place. That, and if you can get a loop or a feedback around that that's different than, hey, I read this sad news story, there's something interesting there.
2: I completely agree with that and I just wanted to jump in yep. with just one example which I, I, I think is amazing and uh, I, I'm actually really excited to try Gowalla. That's I, I remember in the beginning of Facebook when you could share where you were at with friends, I never really share where I'm at with an entire audience anymore until after I've already left. And, and I think a lot of people feel that way, you know, and so that that's a huge opportunity. but. Upworthy was completely founded on the idea that, hey, yes, we have this human nature to engage with fear-based and negative messaging, but the social media and media companies don't need to take advantage of it. Actually, we could decide to only produce Positive stories and see how that and see how that goes. And obviously, that went really, really well for them. And they don't produce anything negative; it's 100% positive. I don't know how many people uh, actually read Upworthy, but it's definitely a, a daily dose of happiness <laughs> and excitement. Uh, for those of you that haven't tried it, I, I highly recommend. And I think it's about making sure that we we have those experiments and we find out those data-driven ways to get people to engage with things that are not necessarily going to be that depressing, fear-based content. That, uh, that drives, unfortunately, a lot of, a lot of uh, investment in uh, advertisement.
0: So for the last year, I've been running an organization in New York called the, Sustainable, the Center for Sustainable Media, focused entirely on young people and how they feel about the way they're treated in media. And it's, I have to tell you, it's the most delightful conversation. Spent a lot of time with 15-, 16-year-olds. They're so smart. They so understand. They love media. They love making it. They love sharing it. They love being part of it and they are absolutely terrified by it. And when you talk to them, they say with absolute clarity, and they say time and time again, I hear this 10 times a week, I just want agency in my media life. Mm-hmm. And and they, they don't understand why they are the product. And so what's interesting to me is all of us in different ways have told stories about you know great things that have happened when we share things, and things terrible that have happened when People were given permission to attack us, essentially without any retribution. And a lot of the word you're hearing now, and you're hearing some of it in legislation, which we can talk about a little bit, you know, but there is a lot of discussion about transparency. And I'll just give you my example of transparency. In New York, uh, the health department puts letters on all the restaurant windows, A, B, C, and D. A, healthy, good. B, uh, maybe some ice in the kitchen. I don't know anyone who would ever go in and sit down at a restaurant with a C on the window. Ever. Because why? There's a restaurant right next door with an A. That transparency, however you feel about health inspectors, and I'm sure there are restaurant owners in the audience that will tell me otherwise. Uh, you know, The fact that we don't know how the social networks behave when they know, and they know the data, and if we knew, hey, we're amplifying hate for profit, and here's evidence of that, we've shared it because we have to, I would say to advertisers, hey, please don't spend money trying to reach me on platforms that amplify hate. It's really simple. I will, I, will, I will demerit your brand, XYZ brand, if you put money into places that amplify hate. It seems like we
2: can close that loop. I mean, there, there's quite a few ways to close that loop. But I, I really feel like one of the things that uh, we constantly get away from, which is now a main part of a lot of regulatory conversations that I have with legislators, is that the reason why we have a no man's land uh, in terms of accountability and legislation and transparency on social media is because we do not have currently the ability to enforce the laws that we expect in public to be uh, upheld. We can't enforce those laws on social media. So for something that you can scream on social media to millions of people if you were to say that in a town square on a public street you would be arrested. But somehow you can say it on social media even if you isn't even a a you, you're a bot in a bot network that then gets amplified to billions of people even. one of the main reasons for this lack of accountability is because we don't have to uh, check our identity in order to use a social media account. Now, I'm not suggesting that people need to be their first name, last name with your picture on social media. You can be an avatar with a fake name. That's totally fine. But as we move into Web3, and you can actually have a digital identity where you have been identity checked, and you can log in with that into social media, it means someone does know who you are. So when you decide to engage in incitement of hatred or violence or, uh, or suppressing someone's vote, L- slander or libel. You can't just be a new fake account that was created by a bot network that is allowed to do that. No, it has to be a human being and that human being can be held accountable for breaking the laws just like we do in our daily lives. So we need to be able to expect that our civil rights, that our human rights can be respected when we are leading our digital lives. And that is really the biggest gap that we have right now. We do have many ways to close it. Still think we're many years off because it's so hard to get federal legislation through Congress right now. But there are so many people working on it. And I think in the next couple of years, we will start to see hopefully more of a civil society as opposed to a complete Wild West uh, on our social media landscape.
0: Question for the audience. Anyone, raise your hand if you're experimenting with any of the new Twitter alternative platforms. Anyone? Somebody here? It's hard to see. Um, Does anyone want to just jump up and tell a story about how it's going? Do You want to just tell us about it? No. I've never been in a place with, with, with there there you go okay I great I
4: joined Mastodon and it was incredibly confusing and difficult at the beginning when you had to find like the
5: correct
0: server and get invited to it and I didn't not only did I not and trying to find like oh here are the topics I'm interested in oh there are no servers for that and I know they've opened it up more since then but it was Difficult at the beginning, and but I, the thing I really appreciated was
4: they, uh, from the beginning at least, seemed to have put a lot of thought into sort of anti-harassment steps to make sure that it is a safer, more thoughtful place than the hellscape
0: that Twitter is and has become more so. So, did you? Are you still on it? Did you stay on it? I am, but I don't use it nearly as often as I use Twitter. There just isn't. I don't have the audience that I had there. Understood. Anyone else? Anyone?
5: I'll say that um, I've been using a lot of Discord recently, so I know it's not exactly Twitter, but it's a chat platform, and um, I find that pretty confusing, especially when there's multiple conversations going on around an event or something like that, and you've got to keep going between different threads or servers or whatever the hell they're called. See, I don't even know the terminology, and I get trapped in these cycles. Is there a reason why you find Twitter less confusing, like historically? I think really it comes back to the fact that when Twitter first came out, I thought, oh, yeah, they've just taken the status box from Facebook. And it grew little by little, and I grew with it. Um, but one of the things I'm, I'd just like to ask you guys about here. is I've got a 12-year-old. I don't let her on social yet, unfortunately for her. But, um, or fortunately, I'm I'm not really sure, but what I am trying to do is build something that is good enough for her and her friends to be on. And I think that's one of the problems with virtuous, like tech for good is often it's not as sexy as, you know, the adult version, which is what the kids want. Um, Where do you stand on the fact that tech for good is usually the lame-ass version of (laughs) good tech, bad tech?
0: It, by the way, it's a great question, and and here's the only thing I will say that to be supportive. If you put a room together of 50 parents of kids your age and asked how many of them are struggling with it, you would get a 100% answer. I mean, it is it is the, all, many of the parents of the 15-year-olds I talk to are they literally what they'll say is, I go to bed at night terrified and I wake up in the morning terrified. So that's a, I mean that you're not alone in that. I got it. Yeah, 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 and that will last for another year or two, and then at some point it won't. Uh, advice for parents struggling with tech?
3: Boy, that's, that's a difficult one. I've, we've had to go through that, you know, with a, a couple teenage daughters now, and I, my advice is pump the brakes as long as you can, you know. And it, it becomes hard because you're swimming a little bit upstream because all their friends, you know, have Snapchat or TikTok. I think I think TikTok's kind of a, a disaster. And I don't mean that from like a. I mean we can talk about the. The, you know, foreign government thing but, but just, just this I'm going to scroll forever I think um, you know, doesn't necessarily foster the creativity or whatever you want as a, as a parent so uh, fortunately I do think that um, I believe there's a lot of kids out there that are starting to be more aware of this and I think there are role models that are, that are spreading this word that hey maybe so- all social media isn't the best um, certainly at that age but I think it's a really difficult struggle and I think it's something to be aware of
2: Uh, And I'd like to say I would uh, address that from two different angles, and one is that I I would like to have hope that in the future you won't have to be as afraid and have so few options. Uh, I think there's a a legal answer to this and an education answer to this, and one is that we don't have digital literacy education in most schools, uh, but we're starting to. Uh, Many governments now have signed on at the national level to include digital literacy education in the public school curriculum. Uh, that has been led by the DQ Institute, and that is now a a global effort. I spoke with them at the G20 about this, and there's many governments that are starting to sign on. It's being piloted in a lot of uh, US schools as well. So hopefully, that's generational change, and so kids will be a little bit more aware that if they are in the adult version, that they actually know how to be more conscious consumers of digital content and how to protect themselves. But secondly, uh, there are a lot of large-scale lawsuits that are going on right now against companies uh, like Meta, where Uh, hopefully as soon as possible uh, over the next couple of years we won't have our children targeted by suicide websites etc and so forth Uh, right now I think there are poor excuses that they don't decide to spend any of their hundreds of billions of dollars investing in capacity building to prevent things like this is really just an excuse but it's now criminal negligence likely Uh, so we'll we'll see very soon uh, what the courts decide
1: well, I think your question was about like lame like why is it lame ass technology f- is the virtuous technology right? Like I-, I-, I think that's a really excellent point. I also um started Mastodon and was extremely frustrated by how wonky it was and you're like, dear God, why can't like just one engineer <laughs> like spend two hours so that I can log on to an app? And I think that um I, I think that Though, like, there's a lot of momentum for change now. I mean, if you look at the number of um, former Twitter employees who are in Tech Reporter's inbox wanting to launch a new solution, you know, I mean, open source projects get um, the goodwill and energy and time of so many people. And I think, I, I, I couldn't picture like a scalable way of doing it, but in terms of excitement around building something better. I think the more toxic and honestly the more lame that the mainstream versions get. I mean, just like look at Instagram now, it's just it's just like TikTok 2 weeks later and you know, um it's just it's 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 not fun. Um, so I, I think that incentivizes people to build new things. The problem has always been, um, you know, you were saying like you don't have the same audience. It's just really hard to compete with with this the scale and the social graph that these massive companies own. Um, but the, I feel like there's more incentive than ever for for um, for even just like, yeah, a smaller network, if you can convince your friends. I mean, you know, when you're an early adopter, you're always waiting for your friends to join the app, and that's what makes it good. But I see, like, for example, people moving to Signal um, more and more, which is a messaging app, not the same as social media. But I-, I think people are looking for better ways of being online.
0: Now we've got some questions lined up. Go ahead. Or a statement.
6: <laughs> yeah, it's not a question. I have a unique perspective. I'm actually the founder of a social networking app called Communia, um, I'm not from the tech industry. I'm a survivor. That's why I created my own app. Uh, I learned the hard way that you don't always have uh, the freedom of speech that you would hope for on mainstream social media platforms. And one thing we do differently is that we require everyone to verify their identity before they can communicate with anyone on the app. And we're super bootstrapped, we're super small, but we have um, a lot of users and we've had a lot of success with that. We've also recently monetized through unique added value features, that's also going well. So I just wanted to say that you know you can be more creative in how you make money I and we've had uh, serious traction, so there is hope, and there are a lot of other up-and-coming social media startups, um, like Landing Space in particular, I'd shout out, um, that are doing things differently. So, yeah, thanks. Spell the name. C-O-M-M-U-N-I-A. Dot. Dot. Uh, just communion. It's on the App Store, Apple and Android. <laughs> sure.
3: Very cool. Thank,
6: Thank you. you. Our community at socials. Thanks. Bye.
3: <laughs> Excellent. Just a tail on that and, and to affirm, I think one of the exciting things we have seen now is because the the totality of the users of social media and, and smartphones now is so much larger, niches have become larger too. And if you remember ten years ago, getting somebody to spend ninety-nine cents for an app was was really, really difficult. And now people are much more inclined to I will spend six ninety nine or seven ninety nine for a streaming service or for something that brings me value and so i do think there is hope for alternative business models where people in smaller communities are willing to spend you know X, y a month in order to support something that they believe in and so to that point i think that there is encouraging signs to see different business models emerge here go ahead
4: Hey, so um, each of your your intro, the bad side of social media, like really resonated with me. I, I have the word gold in my last name, so the, the three brackets, the echoes really resonate. My wife is a journalist at a, at a major paper, um, so I know what you're going through. I found a Russian intelligence operation that was imitating my former employer back in 2017. Um, so I know exactly the kind of content that real organizations had to compete with, which just didn't stand up. And last month, that was swatted. Um, so I am a, wow. I'm a veteran. Uh, I am the founder of Task Force Butler Institute. And I am an organi- we are an organization that trains veterans in OSINT, uh, open source intelligence, to hunt Nazis online. So thank you. <laughs> So, uh, which is why I got swatted. I mean, yeah, I get it. So, um, <laughs> so one of the things that's been most frustrating to me, and, and I used to be, I, I wrote the book on, like literally, on foreign entities that target troops, veterans, and our families with everything from propaganda to romance scams to extremist narratives. Um, Facebook went and took that 200-page report that cost, uh, uh, nonprofit a quarter of a million dollars to develop, said thank you, and made all of the evidence disappear. Now today, as I'm hunting neo-Nazis, I'm strictly uh, focused on domestic threats. When, uh, when someone reports an account that maybe I've been monitoring and trying to figure out who's behind it, the evidence just disappears. So what can be done to make sure that these companies are preserving evidence. Is, is this like a legislative thing, or do yes. we even want them to preserve? Like, question for you. Do we want them to preserve that evidence? Because when I find something where, you know, maybe I'm right around the corner from identifying a, a, a real-world dangerous neo-Nazi to have the trail go cold just sucks.
2: Uh, that's the entire point of a lot of the uh, Web3 and distributed ledger blockchain-based startups in the social media space, which is that you you can't delete data that has been created. You can hide it um, or make it unsearchable, but say law enforcement went to the social media company, they would have that data. It would be encrypted on the blockchain. It, there wouldn't be a way to say that it didn't exist. So... Uh, I think any forensic analysis of a blockchain based database uh, is made specifically for these purposes so that when criminal activity is conducted through social media that the evidence can never be uh, deleted. And so I think that, that is a huge step forward for social media and for making a more civil space in our digital lives. Uh, we're, we're not there yet, a lot of uh, social media are still based on Web2 technology. And just like a lot of uh, the biggest social media companies out there, they often uh, delete data, and that's uh, a huge problem and has made a lot of government investigations very difficult.
1: Have you been able to get any communication with Facebook at all?
2: (laughs) Um, Yeah,
4: and it's a one-way street. I mean, same thing as like talking to the FBI. I'll I'll give them, you know, uh, troves of evidence and accounts disappear, and that's all I get out of them.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think they've gotten, and not Facebook in particular, but um, the companies have um, changed policies in a way that's made it so much more frustrating for researchers, even though researchers have given them, like, a protocol that would work to remove the content and yet keep the evidence. Um, so, I guess what I've seen is just people figuring out how to store that themselves, which, mm-hmm. you know, depending on what type of content you're storing it you know puts you in some legal liable issues right but but um you're not alone like i i do hear this from researchers all the time and um i think the companies know that and they just are um choosing to go a route that's easier for them
0: so there's also legislation so the only thing that there's bipartisan support for in Washington right now, the only thing that I can find, is that both the Democrats and the Republicans seem to agree that there needs to be some big tech controls put in place. Now they agree for totally different. They don't agree with each other. I mean, and that's the danger of it is that they're both. They're, both sides are writing bills that look the same, and they're both about protecting children theoretically. But if you dig below the surface, you know they have different political agendas. That being said, I think you're going to see some legislation move through just because there's a lot of incentive for it whether that's a good thing or a bad thing there's lots of debate about next go ahead this is great by the way thank you
7: <laughs> hi i wanted to add into some of the discussion um about social media platforms um especially when it comes to gen z i think a lot of the times gen z is often villainized as oh we need to teach gen z how to kind of navigate social media I got Instagram in middle school. So I think a lot of the times we're kind of centering a lot of these conversations around people who are digital natives. Whereas I have the hardest time telling my grandparents that the crap they're reading on Facebook isn't true. Mm. And even my parents' generation. And so I am very curious into resources and Thoughts, perhaps, on how to educate older generations. My parents and my grandparents are going to live and die on Facebook, whereas me and my friends are still shifting platforms. We're not really on Instagram anymore as much. Um, We're on TikTok. Right now, our highest uh, social media platforms are platforms like Be Real, which are kind of more similar to platforms that you're doing. Big fan. Yeah, yeah, do like more smaller groups. But what I'm seeing is my, my parents' generation's Facebook, all day, every day. So kind of how are we going to teach older generations, kind of teach an old dog new tricks of being able to look at something and know that that isn't real?
0: They're struggling with that. And and by the way, we're 10 seconds away from the evolution of AI making that way more complicated. I mean (laughs) every day, yeah.
2: So true, and I I think, again, this goes back to a digital literacy discussion, which one of the main components of digital literacy is media literacy. And that's understanding how to be a conscious consumer of digital content, how to spot when you are being targeted, how to spot uh, disinformation, misinformation, and the uh, you know deep fakes, all of the different types of content that now we're, we're seeing every single day on our newsfeed. And the less digital native you are, the less obvious it is to you when you're seeing something uh, that has that specific intent behind it. So if you go to uh, my charity's website, ownyourdata.foundation, Uh, We have a lot of different links to media literacy resources, and I would say my my favorite is on uh, dqinstitute.org. So, DQ Institute is one of our partners. They created... uh, not an IQ or an EQ indicator set, but DQ, a digital uh, digital uh, intelligence quotient, and media literacy is a huge chunk of their indicator points, and they have a lot of different resources around that that are now being taught all around the world, and they are kind of the, the, the G20 global experts uh, on digital literacy and the IEEE Uh, which is the world's largest technology organization and standard setting organization. It's the IEEE Global Standard in Digital Literacy Education and what is actually being implemented into national curriculum. Next.
8: Hi, I am very nervous, but feel called to share. Um, I, oh, sorry. I live in San Francisco, I work in tech. I was at South by last year and I got COVID. It really affected my attention span, my energy, et cetera. Uh, I had long COVID and all I could really accomplish was laying in bed and watching TikTok videos for hours on end. Um, I didn't know how long I would quit going into it, but I did quit social media. Um, It's now been a year, it changed my life. Um, I didn't have an issue with the FOMO or the likes or any of that, it was more so, there's the attention span, I think, the ability to, I have a bad thought, let me go to social media and forget about it. Um, I ended up reading uh, digital minimalism and found out that I had kind of created my own digital manifesto, which is, I no longer use apps that take advantage of my brain chemistry. Um, it changed the way I look at the world. It changed the way I look at my body. I'm never going to go back. I was able to go off all of my anxiety and depression medication. And yeah, this, this is myself. I take two. So called to share that with you all. Thank you.
2: Congratulations and well done. You're stronger yeah. than I am. And if anyone wants to know how to uh, weed out apps and features in apps that take advantage of your brain chemistry, I think my friend Tristan Harris's organization, uh, the Center for Humane Technology, has the the best resources for that. It's humanetech.org. And go to humaintech.org slash what to do. And they have this incredible list. I also have a link on my website, uh, onyourdata.foundation, to their resources. And it will tell you how to take away all of the different, you know. Pop-up notifications that are not from real humans. Like you don't need to know, uh, at, you know, your your friend's dog's birthday. It, you don't need a notification for that. And you can also, in many phones, actually turn off colors so that it's black and white. And again, it, it stops this brain chemistry trigger that addicts you to your phone. Again, like. Facebook has hired the same people that design slot machines in Vegas in order to make their products addictive. So we need to remember that and do what this lady so intelligently has done and realize that we can do things to interact with technology in a healthier way. We have time for just one more question and then I have a final question for
0: the panel. Mm,
9: Thank you. Um, Scott Henderson, I've been coming to South by since 2009, but in 2008 I saw on Twitter everyone was in Austin eating barbecue and I said, why am I not there? So I've been coming for 15 years, and and, and went from 35 to 50 year old in that time period. Uh, And one of the things I was—I've been pretty jaded with social media uh, as of late, because it seems like you have to map a successful app to the seven deadly sins. Uh, And uh, and what what I'm hearing here is is hopeful. One is niches are are getting bigger, uh, and uh, and so you can build without having to take the old old ways. And so um, I, I guess question for you as a panel is, um, more noble ways that aren't, I mean, better ways, I mean, more informed ways that we can go about building social media apps that aren't going to be taken advantage by, because it seems like we start with this idealism of utopia and then human nature shows up again, right? So if we just know that we are wired this way, people are going to take advantage of these wires. Is it really in the niches that, that we can go? Because I I've, I've, I've now run an adventure studio, and there's a company called SheMate.Club helping female athletes in high school connect to female athletes in college to get role models because they don't get role models on Instagram and Facebook and, and TikTok. What, what, else, what other noble paths could we go that are realistic noble
0: paths? What you guys don't know is we arranged this, he and I. That was exactly the question I was going to ask you to wrap up. So that's perfect. Thank you. Tell us one thing either a URL or a site or a person, one thing that people can write down and take away that you think will help them have more control or more autonomy in their digital lives or share with their family, one thing. And by the way, you can pitch your own product, that's fine.
3: Let's see, you know, I'll pitch something. I know there are another there are a number of apps out there. One uh, one was an app called Freedom. There are probably other ones that are that are have come around since then that basically uh, allow you to well or even focus mode on your phone. I found It's like how do you just say hey, I want these apps to shut off, and there are apps that will help you do it, and or you can manually set it up yourself. But I do think you know if you are looking to just again kind of break that cycle of hey, how do I you know open Twitter every time. Um, you know I have a spare moment you know putting yourself into that focus mode is a, is a great way to, to to throttle it and then again I think looking for uh, again if I am going to shill Goala or Be Real or some of these other networks that uh, are, are focused and allow you to connect with groups of friends that you really know and this kind of goes back to our discussion about identity I think that that That's where I'm excited to see creativity is is in products like that that encourage you to connect with real people that you have real relationship with. I'm downloading Koala when we get off the stage. Mm -hmm. Brittany.
2: I think you're exactly right. It's really screen time management in order to uh, improve your mental and physical health with this addiction that we all have to technology. And whether you want to call it an addiction or a necessity, we all lead digital lives. So the more that we can free up our mental space for things that help us actually achieve our life goals, the better. So on the screen time management side, definitely go into every uh, unnecessary app and turn off All notifications, if possible, or at least all notifications where it's not a direct call or message from a human being that you care about. It's so incredibly important. And if for some reason you have still buzzing or noise that actually comes out of social media notifications, turn that off. I've had my phone on silent for almost 13 years, and I'm telling you, my mental health has vastly improved from back then. So the more that you can take away things that are unnecessary, you know, if it's not your best friends or your family or your work colleagues, you should not be hearing or seeing notifications from these things. You can decide to set aside, you know, an hour or so a day where you're going to go and you're going to check your private messages. You're going to go and you're going to look at your news feed. But don't make that a constant thing. Set aside time specifically for that, and then... So much more time opens up. You can't believe what you can accomplish when you really decide to minimize your social media engagement.
0: Natasha.
1: Well, I'm I'm certainly not going to sit up here and talk about how to have a healthy relationship with social media um, because I don't have one. But I it has. <laughs> it has really been beneficial to me to understand what they call dark patterns. Um, You know, the ways that these apps um, gamify and uh, incentivize you to stay engaged, to stay on them. Um, Like, just to repeat, you know, uh, the earlier point where Brittany was talking about, like, certain human urges. They talk about, like the way that these apps go for like the basest, like your lizard brain level human. You know, there are, we have, we have more sophisticated wants and desires than just sharing bad information. And it's very much tied to the financial structure and how these companies make money. And I think when you know that, has that kept me off Twitter? No, but like, but do I, do I know what, is happening to me, and does it stop me in certain instances? Um, has it made me disengage? Because I know what's going to happen when I tweet something, and I don't want to take the next three hours of my life kind of you know, intermittently checking my phone. Uh, I, I think it just, you should always know what's being used and deployed, what like, strategies are being deployed on you. And there's lots of good information about uh, these dark patterns.
0: So I'll end with two things. When you talk to teenagers, because they're gonna be the solution, the thing that we've come up with and that I'm proud of is that we believe that young people deserve digital dignity. And if you go to sustainablemedia.center, we have a newsletter we'd love to have you join. With that, my wife and I have talked about this. We've determined that Duke is too young. He doesn't have a social media account. He's not on Instagram. So I thought I would just end with Duke. This is the only time he's gonna be on the internet, so (laughs) snap your pictures now. Thank you panel, thank you everybody. Thanks for being here, thanks for sharing.